0: This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network. So you
1: can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where
0: every piece of cargo is and where it's
1: going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security,
0: giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network terms apply.
1: When fall is more of a mindset than an actual season. When your cozy sweater is more of a symbol than an actual style. And when the person looking back at you in the mirror agrees that it's time your summer gets a fall refresh, grab a new Blood Orange Dunkin' Refresher. Blood Orange and cranberry flavors mixed with fall spices. It's the perfect fall refresh because you can never fall too hard. Even if some would debate whether it's quite fall yet. America runs on Duncan. Present participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.
0: Cancer affects almost everyone. For all the listeners listening to this, I'm sure you've been affected by it, maybe personally, like for yourself, or have had others that you have known that have had cancer. And each experience is very different. My guest today is Dr. Renee Exelbert, and she had the experience of being a psychology oncologist, but then also becoming a cancer patient as well. Her story is incredible, and the intricacies of that story and understanding the concepts of powerlessness and the differences in cancer stories was really interesting to me. And by the way, she's probably the only person I've ever met that can make a push-up sound philosophical. If you don't know what that means, make sure you check it out here on the broadcast. You're going to really love the conversation that I have with Dr. Renee Exelberg. We are good to go. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on, Renee And uh, to see your face here, I love seeing people. And you know, just you came on, you were excited, just like me. I love when people are excited.
1: Absolutely, ready to rock and roll.
0: So, um, one by the way, your PR person, Deborah, she's fantastic. She is. She's like so on top of it, and she was, you know, saying, "Oh, I think Renee would be great on your show," and this and that. And she's like gets back to people quickly. Man, I love that.
1: Yeah, she's awesome.
0: So I want to dive into your story. Sure. And chemo muscles, very interesting to me. And I want to talk about kind of where you started, you know, in your practice and and to where you got to with all the things you've been going through in your perspective after that. So give me the rundown, kind of take me back, you know.
1: Take you back. Take you far back.
0: And
1: a faraway land. I guess I should start with um, the fact that I was a psychologist and I was working in a pediatric cancer center. And I did that for six years. I was working with children and adolescents who were diagnosed with cancer. um, And I was counseling them and working with their families. And it was incredibly beautiful work. I really, really loved it. Um, After six years, uh, I had been exposed to a lot of trauma and some really personal losses, uh, with some of the children, even though pediatric cancer has a very high cure rate. Um, but after six years, yeah, after six years, it was time for me to leave. Um, and what was the hardest part about
0: it? I want to talk, what what, what was it about that? That was so difficult I mean, it sounds obvious, but maybe there's a different side of it for you.
1: I think that when you work, um, I think that when you work with people in general, as a psychologist, you want to give as much of your heart as possible. Uh, But when you're working with children with cancer, the boundaries are somewhat different. Uh, You're, Mm -hmm. you know, you're with these kids all day long. Um, In a typical psychotherapy session, you'd be with somebody for 45 minutes to an hour and it'd be once a week and that would be it. But when you're with kids with cancer, they're sitting in a treatment room and they're getting chemotherapy all day. And so you're playing video games with them and you're there if they don't feel well and they throw up and Mm. you know, they might come back the next day for treatment too. So the relationships are very intense. Um, and you know, they become very connected to you and vice versa. Um, and so, uh, it, it was just really intense, beautiful work. Um, but you're really sharing very much sharing the journey with the family and the child from diagnosis until the end of treatment. Um, and occasionally there there are some really heartbreaking losses.
0: And the cure rate's high. I didn't know that for pediatric cancer.
1: Yeah, for pediatric cancer the cure rate is about 80%, which oh, is wow. which is very high. Yeah.
0: Wow. I did not know that. That's yeah. surprising. I mean, but why is that that it's so high cuz they're so young?
1: Um I that I don't know, but um yeah, you know there are certain cancers that have higher cure rates. Um, But yeah, in general, the the cure rate for pediatric cancer is is high.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I actually, I don't know why you see like a a commercial of something like that, and it just looks so devastating. And I think that would be the worst thing to lose a child, you know, from something. So I'm glad it's curable on a high level. Yeah. So you had to step away. because. It was time to move on. Too intense. What was the reasoning?
1: Um, I think that it was. um, I think that in some capacity, it was starting to impact uh, my own sense of my own children. I would get a a call from the nurse uh, that my daughter had a headache, and I no longer saw her headache as a in a normal way. I, you know, I I saw her headache in through a lens of trauma. You know, I had to know where the headache was. Was she alert? Was she oriented? And and it just I realized that that the level of trauma that I had been exposed to was starting to impact me at a personal level. And so I felt like it was time to leave.
0: Oh, so it's kind of like, you were thinking maybe she's has something more serious than just a headache. Um, Right? Because what you had seen with that? Yeah,
1: exactly. You know, you have, um, as caregivers, sometimes we can have what we call secondary trauma, right? When you're exposed to trauma over and over and over again, sometimes you know you can you can be affected by it. Um, we see that with many professions, you know, police officers, and we see that with many professions. But um, I, I knew enough to know that it was time for me to step away.
0: So what? So what was the next aspect of that? When you stepped away from that, where did you see yourself going into after that?
1: Uh, so I had been a, um, I had been a psychologist in private practice, mm-hmm. and uh, I had um, I had already been working in a private practice for many years. So I so I thought that I would continue working in a private practitioner capacity.
0: Okay, and I'm curious about this. Like, what do you think is the most difficult thing and the best thing about being working in private practice uh, in psychology?
1: the most uh, you said the most difficult thing difficult and the best thing. thing yeah the difficult
0: the, the difficult best what is the, the what are the two yeah. edges of it you know
1: sure. um for me uh i would say you know it's it's primarily overwhelmingly positive um i have been extremely blessed in my life and in my profession to do the work that i do i love what i do um i think that it's incredibly um amazing to walk the journey of somebody else in their life. Uh, I think it's a real gift and a blessing that people let you share their world and let you be a part of their pain or their joy. Um, for me, the greatest gift is when I work with a young person, maybe somebody in middle school when they might be going through a difficult time mm. and I might see them for a year or I, I, it depends on the person Uh, and then I might not hear from them for another few years, and then they might call me when they're in high school, and they're stressing out about getting into college, and I might spend a few months with them working on anxiety, and then they get into college, and I don't hear from them for a while, and then I get a random text message that they broke up with their boyfriend, and they want to speak to me, and I speak to them, and You know, and then they come home for the holidays or summer vacation. And I might just have some booster shots with them where they come in and we just catch up. And then before you know it, life has passed by and I get a text message with a picture of an engagement ring. Um, And so for me, that's just the most beautiful thing that I get to be a part of so many people's lives um, in such a meaningful way. Uh, So so that's definitely a a great, great, great part of it. Uh, A negative, I I really couldn't say that I've had any negatives. I love what I do. I would choose it again and again and again. Uh, And I I do mean that, again and again. In terms of, like, caregiver burnout, I try very hard to be aware of that, um, which is one of the reasons why I did leave the pediatric cancer center when I did. I'm very aware of when I need to sort of take a step back. I'm aware when I get drained sometimes. So that does happen. Um, But I have many... Um, measures of self-care in place, um, you know, to just make sure that I stay boundary and that I stay, um, stay okay, you know.
0: So what do you do? Take me through kind of your, the things that you do to.
1: right before I saw, right before I I had this uh, podcast with you, I just got back from a massage. Oh. So, yeah, so that's like definitely one way of self-care. Um, but I'm a, you know, for me, my therapy is the gym. Um, I actually have a tank top that says I exercise because killing people is frowned upon (laughs) for me, like (laughs) a hundred percent, you know, for me, I clear my head in the gym. Uh, that is the best therapy for me. Um, it's a very meditative experience for me. Uh, and it's, it's, it's my therapy. Um, and so I do that, you know, five to six days a week. And that's, the I'd say, the primary way that I take care of myself. Uh, but I've also become much more of a mindful, meditative person. I have lots of moments of silence. Um, if I drive home from work and it's an hour car ride coming home, I might drive home for an entire hour and listen to silence and just focus on my breathing. Um, I try and have many moments of mindfulness where I – you know, I'm reflective and I engage my five senses and I practice gratitude. Um, so those are some of the ways.
0: It's interesting. You and I have a very similar mentality about exercise, I would say, you know, kill
1: people too. I, yeah, well, listen, I don't want to kill anybody. I mean,
0: (laughs) I think that ever since I was a teenager, exercise has always been very therapeutic for me in the sense if I had problems going on or was angry, I would immediately forget about them when I exercise. It, it's the great um, forgetter. You know, whatever you're going through, it just kind of washes away because, especially if you're working out really hard, your body is becoming very narrowed in the sense of, I'm trying to work through this particular pain or the um, uncomfortable aspect of working out. So, I can't focus on all the other stuff that may be going on in my life. So, it's always been kind of a centering mechanism for me Absolutely. in a sense. I mean, so Absolutely. I totally identify with that. And I hear the whole meditation thing. Actually, through doing this podcast, I would say almost every person comes on and says that now, that meditation is becoming a bigger part of their self care practice. Why do you think that is? Yep.
1: Well, I, I, you know, when I say meditation, I don't necessarily mean sitting. Uh, and breathing, and you know, focusing on my breath and saying, yes. oh, you know, that's not actually for me. No, I, I think medit- meditative practice can be so many things. Um, meditative practice for me is about mindfulness. So, for me, mindfulness is about being present and engaged in whatever it is that I'm doing. And so, I may have a meditative breakfast, and that might mean that I sit and I have my hazelnut coffee and I hold the <sighs> mug between my hands mm-hmm. and I'm really in touch with the mm-hmm. heat and I smell the hazelnut and I'm aware of the quiet and I breathe it in. And it's like just a very sort of sacred five minutes. I think that many people are very accustomed to checking all their emails while, while yeah. they're drinking their coffee and rushing through the day, you know? And so even something like a shower is an opportunity for a mindful practice. You know, totally you can, engage, yeah, five senses in the shower You know, most people are in the shower and they're ruminating about all the things that they have to do for the day. But, you know, if you're in the shower and you're feeling the hot water and you smell the shampoo and when you're lathering up the soap, it feels like self care. It's, you know, when you're listening to the sound of the water, it's a very meditative practice. And those five to 10 minutes, you know, starting your day, take on a whole different meaning. So for me, that's, that's what meditation means.
0: I think we're changing the idea of what meditation means. To, I think what you said, you know, basically you're saying, om, or you're sitting in a position, your legs are locked or type of thing. I was I told somebody on my podcast, I think meditation for me, I have very a lot of meditative conversations with people like I get in the zone and I feel this sense of medit- yeah. that I'm meditating when I have conversations like this. Um, It's such a narrow, singular focus. Yeah. Yeah.
1: An exercise
0: like that, a great workout, when you're really pushing it or you're just in the flow, nothing else exists. And you're just, I feel like working out, like for me, hard exercise is very meditative for me. So I think we're changing what that means. You're just not like in a room with 50 people meditating over yoga music or something, you know, like that.
1: Absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And plus when you exercise, your brain's serotonin. Yes you know
0: yeah exactly so
1: it makes you feel it it actually is biologically making you feel better you know it is actually like giving you neurotransmitters that that calm you down and release and you know
0: how do you prepare for uh, a session i know you talked about for this you did like massage but like is there a regular practice you do like before you go into a session
1: like a a psychotherapy session
0: Yeah, like there's anything like to get yourself in the right mindset for it.
1: No, Um, I will say that there is something that I do at the end of each day. Oh, Um, oh, look at this. I like this. I'm really into this. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So uh, at the end of the day, when I've been working all day, and I come home uh, to my family, one of the first things that I do is I wash my hands. Um, And it's sort of a ritual that I do, which is both psychological and just also from a health perspective. It's sort of like psychologically, I'm washing my hands from, you know, what I've experienced during the day, right? I'm separating from everybody else's problems and I'm entering into my own home and I'm washing my hands. And then before I hug anybody, before I do anything, I get changed into my cozy pajamas. Um, and, <laughs> and it's sort of like now I'm like in home mode, right? And it's like now I'm mommy and I'm a wife and I can chill and it's a totally different experience. But I do do those two things. It's, it's like literally a um, you know, a separation and, and it's like a concrete separation just doing those two rituals.
0: I like that. I think that um, we're starting to have to do that. With the way our society is going and smartphone use and social media and all that. I have kind of a similar thing. I, we're very similar in a lot of our practices, I think. But I, I kind of like. I don't
1: have after, hair like that, so. you,
0: Well, your hair looks, you know, uh, it looks nice, <laughs> by the way. But I noticed it when I got your bio picture. I'm like, nice hair. I like the hair. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> this is a whole new look for me, actually, in the last two years. I went through a very big transformation where I had a bald head for 20 years, like purposely, like I shaved my really? head. Yes, I hated my hair. I don't know why. It was just like a thing. And then, like two years ago, I'm like, I have hair, like a full head of hair. And I decided to grow it out, and I said, I want to have a blonde streak. I want to have a blonde streak. And
1: I love it.
0: That was like the thing I, I wanted. I love that.
1: it. So you sort of have. A, it's a, awesome.
0: Thank so if you. people
1: ask if blondes have more fun. You kind of have like a real comparison going on.
0: Yeah, I look. You see the. You can see the non blonde You can see the blonde. <laughs> I'm serious here awesome. and fun here. You know, it's kind of like. But it love was it. kind of this transformation. Thank you. This transformation mm-hmm. of kind of like the person I'm becoming. But I, you know, I I pretty much after 7 p.m. I don't look at my phone at all. I put it away. And I give that time to That's my family great. and stuff. So there's like my wife gets upset sometimes because when she works at night, she wants to have the me to have the phone near her in case she needs to call me. So and I'm like, okay. I really want to do this, you know, type of thing. But I get um, it. So I get what you're no, saying, I'm, your thing, you know.
1: Yeah. It's actually really, really um important to take breaks from uh from technology. You know, studies show that um when we're constantly exposing our brains to technology that uh, our brains actually mimic uh, brain scans of people who have severe trauma, uh, particularly when we reach for our cell phones first thing in the morning, uh, most people, that's what they do. And it doesn't give the brain an opportunity to just quiet and be settled. Um, and it actually studies show that it actually increases our level of stress in general. Right. Um, so I try. Yeah, I try and put the cell phone away.
0: Yeah, I know what's good. Um I'm I'm fascinated by I, your book that was sent to me as well. Chemo muscles? Very interesting. Yes. And your your experience from being on one side of cancer and then being on the other. I would love for you to talk about that.
1: Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, as I said, I was uh working as a psychologist for 6 years. Uh, with children and adolescents who are diagnosed with cancer. So my capacity was working with the children and their families. And I would talk to them about how to talk to uh, children and siblings about cancer. I would work with people who were really going through a lot of trauma, do a lot of, you know, emotional counseling, uh, work with people who were really extremely frightened and disempowered. Um, and, you know, I understood that experience from a professional lens, but I also was very emotionally connected. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that until you experience that level of trauma on your own, uh, it's really difficult to understand how devastating it is. Uh, somebody once asked me, um, what was the difference between, um, me being a patient and me being a, uh, you know, a professional. And I think that until you really, really go through something on your own and experience that level of extreme terror, it's really hard to um, to really know what somebody else goes through.
0: What was the diagnosis like for you when you received it?
1: Uh, so I had breast cancer twice. I had a recurrence. Um, the first time that I uh, was told that there was any kind of concern on my baseline mammogram. I was only 37 years old. Um, I actually only had a baseline mammogram because I, um, my husband and I wanted to have a third child. And so prior to getting pregnant, I kind of just wanted to get the mammogram out of the way because I figured I'd be pregnant for nine months. Uh, I'd be breastfeeding for at least a year. And so I was young to have a baseline mammogram. I had no family history of breast cancer. I didn't need a mammogram until I was 40. Um, But I decided to have a baseline mammogram. And uh, literally, uh, a few days later, I got a call from my gynecologist saying that there was uh, some small concern about my mammogram. And my mom had a history of what they call fibrocystic breasts. She had many, many scares where... She had dense breast tissue and they constantly would double check her. And so when my gynecologist told me this, I, I had no concerns. I said, my mom has this history. It's nothing. Uh, here I go. This is going to be my path. I'm going to constantly be getting these you know, phone calls that they're worried, but I actually wasn't scared. Um, and uh, in, in this time period, I also became pregnant. Um, and, Then about a week after the first phone call that I got from the gynecologist, I got a second phone call saying that now the same, uh, radiologist had extreme concerns about my mammogram. Um, and so it moved from some, you know, some minor, you know, minor concerns to all of a sudden being somewhat of an emergency, which I was very confused about. Um, and then definitely experienced terror. Um, and, uh, it began a a series of just days running into each other and uh, just an extreme amount of trauma. And um, yeah.
0: Did you ever think back to your time at the hospital when this happened to you, like working with the kids and like make you understand their terror or their parents' terror a little bit more?
1: Sure. There were definitely experiences that I had as a patient that uh, reminded me of, of things that patients would tell me. I remember when I worked in the pediatric cancer center, I would, part of my job was to just knock on the door uh, when new patients presented in the in the center. And I would just introduce myself. And it was very casual. I'd be like, hey, I'm Renee, I'm a psychologist. And I think that when you are going through such a severe trauma, one of the things that you experience is extreme extreme powerlessness. Um, and one of the things that you feel is that other people know what's going on. So I used to have these parents terrified when I would knock on the door and they would say, Do you know something? Oh. And I'm like, What do you mean do I you know something? And they would say, like, Do you do you know something that we don't know? Did the doctors tell you something? And I remember at the time being so struck that they they Thought that I had this knowledge that they didn't have. Hmm. And I, I found it so odd because I was like, why would I know something that you don't know? Um, and I do remember thinking that that was odd. But then, you know, fast, flash forward six years, um, here I am as a patient. And even when I went to get my um, needle biopsy, when they were, you know, determining definitively if I had cancer or not. I remember walking into the office there. It was, and there were office assistants there, and they all had, there was all this, these breast cancer ribbons all over. And I remember when they asked for my name and I gave them my information, I remember feeling like, do they know something? Do they know mm. what I have? Do they know before I know. It's, and I think that it's just a result of being extremely disempowered when you're traumatized that's something that happens. You are extremely dis- disempowered. And I think that the capacity for healthcare providers to either foster that sense of powerlessness or minimize it is is really pertinent. Do you think that there-
0: there's more happening on either side, like there's more people fostering it than there are limiting it? Or in your experience, do you think that there's more people who are saying, hey, like, let's not make them feel so powerless. Let's, let's get ahead of this and think they might be thinking this, you know?
1: I think that there are people who, you know, whether they be healthcare professionals or friends and family mm. members of somebody who's sick, who have absolutely no idea, um, that they may be, uh, disempowering somebody when they are. And I think that it's not at, it's not a malintention. It's just really from a lack of understanding. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote my book. Um, I had the experience of, uh, you know, one of the things that did end up happening to me was when I did have my breast cancer diagnosis, I was pregnant. And, um, unfortunately I had to terminate my pregnancy because, um, there was the possibility that the, uh, estrogen that was in my body and, uh, you know, with the baby was actually making me sicker because I had a mm. estrogen positive a tumor. Um, plus I had to have surgery and that would have caused severe damage to the fetus. So unfortunately, um, I had to terminate my pregnancy, but I had told very, very few people in my life. I had two young children, um, and I, I was traumatized myself. Uh, and I, it was, I didn't really want to share it with other people because I could barely manage my own emotions. But there were a few people who I told. And because those people needed to cope themselves, right, like they care about me and they were hearing traumatizing news, they would share it with some of their friends. And unfortunately, some of their friends would come over to me and say, hey, I heard about X, Y, and Z. And so, you know, one of the experiences that I had that was really just – very overwhelming for me, um, was this feeling of, of betrayal in a way. And it wasn't Mm. meant in any way to be betrayal, but it, it felt like this extreme sense of powerlessness. You know, here I was trying really hard to cope with my own emotions. And, um, part of somebody's sense of empowerment when they're going through a trauma comes from their ability to tell who they want to tell their story to when they want to tell their story when they're ready, yes. right? And how they want to. And so when other people take that ability away from somebody, it's another way to feel victimized. And I don't think that anybody would ever realize that. It's not something that anyone would ever intentionally want to do. But it it is just something that happens in trauma that I think very few people know. So to answer your question, do I think that there are more people who are helpful or traumatizing or whatever, that I think that there are some healthcare professionals who are really gifted and really try to connect and go out of their way to make somebody feel like a person versus a diagnosis. And then I think others need dramatic training, uh, because they just don't, they don't understand, you know? And so honestly, that was one of the Uh, hopes that I had from my book that that some people could be educated about some of those variables that do make patients feel pathologized.
0: Mm. There's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot Mm. going on there. I think the when somebody has something that's very devastating going on, sometimes the tendency is to like, you're not thinking, you're just telling other people, oh, did you hear so and so has this or has that? And you know they they may be very concerned. Oh, I feel so bad about it, but they don't think that they're taking your power away to tell right. that and to I, somebody I, else. Absolutely. You know,
1: right? And I think that you know, um, I 100% get that. You know, we all want to um, to empathize with somebody and be there for somebody, and the intention is always positive. However, yeah. when somebody's going through something, um, you have to ask that person like, who are they sharing this with? is it okay if you share it? Do they not want it to be shared? Because everybody handles trauma differently. Some people are psychologically ready to put it all out there. Other people are having such a difficult time with coping, like I was, that I could could barely cope with my own emotions, let alone deal with the reactions of other people. So I would have people say things to me like, oh my gosh, that's so devastating, or you know, that must be so terrifying. And I would be like, yeah, I could barely like, I could barely stand right. (laughs) Like, I can't, I can't talk to you. I can't handle, you know, your emotion. I've got to like, you know, Mm. survive here. I've got to like, so part of it is also, you know, this protective measure that, you know, that not everybody's ready for that.
0: You said about your own coping, the managing your own coping, what was the most difficult part about managing that or coping with it?
1: Um, I just think, uh, you know, terror. I think terror is a huge thing. And I think that when you get a cancer diagnosis, you're not quite certain how that's going to impact you or your loved ones. You know, if if you're going to live, if you're going to have a shortened life, if you're going to have any physical limitations, um, you know, huge identity changes, um, huge changes in the way that you see yourself. Um, so just a lot. And I was also young, I was 37 years old.
0: That's interesting. And you mentioned like identity changes. Can you speak on that a little bit more? Like kind of what that means?
1: Sure. Um, so, uh, I think that just from a, you know, a psychological standpoint, i I, I think uh, as I was growing up, um, and as I was a young adult, I think that I was somebody who, um uh, was, uh, not always comfortable with asking for help, not always putting myself out there in this vulnerable way. I think that when people looked at me, they saw a tough person who could handle most things. Um, and here, you know, I was slammed with this space of being, of needing to be, or having been extremely vulnerable, um, extremely dependent on other people to just sort of help me. Um, extremely fragile. And so that was a huge identity change for me because, you know, I hadn't been in that space before. Um, I hadn't ever been so terrified. Um, So that was a huge identity change. And then also being so young um, and, you know, going into uh, hospitals and and seeing people who were all above 65 years old when I was 37, um, that was really... Just wild because you know that that wasn't um, you know what I had ever thought of myself. I thought of myself as um, strong and healthy, and uh, I never felt sick. Um, and so I think that's part of the experience of cancer. You feel like your body betrays you. You feel very out of sync with your body, which is for me how all the exercise kicked in. Uh, that was the one you know when I started exercising again that was the one way through actually two ways through diet and exercise that I started to feel back in control Uh, so those are some of the identity changes
0: that's interesting I think it's we don't always think about that when somebody has cancer and a diagnosis that identity I know I didn't I never thought about that like from a sense that your identity and how people see you and how you see yourself had changed oh for sure I don't think for I ever sure. thought about. That. I think you're thinking from somebody who's never had it and I obviously I know many people who have. I never thought about it from that perspective for it. Right. That your right. your identity then, is so, changing.
1: Yeah, and you know, and then there's just also from the the physical, you know, with a, a woman, you know, a woman's uh, physical much of a woman's physical sense of beauty can come from, you know, external uh characteristics about us right you know and breasts are one of them you know so as a young person also that's a struggle you know uh, your sense of you know are you going to lose your hair are you going to lose your breasts are you going to still be able to have children all of these things they're all part of the cancer experience and so yeah major identity changes
0: was there a a part where you saw like Things were coming out on the other end, like very, like okay, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel after all of this. When did that happen?
1: So, uh, when did that happen? Um, that happened, uh, I would say after um, after my surgery in 2007, and I started healing from my surgery, and I started really getting into exercise, and I started being able to get physically stronger. Like, I think that when I was able to start, honestly, like exercise was really transformative for me when I started going to the gym every day. And, you know, uh, like even the, I, I always talk about pushups, but to me, they're so symbolic for so much in life. Like push-ups are literally, you know, a metaphor for, you know, being pushed down and you push yourself back up, you know, and they're also a symbol of you being able to hold yourself up in the world, right? Like it's a very powerful metaphor. And so honestly, even doing pushups was a very important thing for me. And so the stronger that I got and the more muscles that developed on me uh, and the more I learned to take care of myself with food and exercise, the further away I felt from being sick. And I think for me, that was just a, a, you know, a transition that occurred over a few years. Um, and I think that a main marking point for me was at my five year anniversary, uh, when I entered my first figure competition, and literally standing on a stage in stripper heels, and my <laughs> bikini, and you know, something I would I swore I would never do. Um, and, you know, flexing my muscles. It was literally like this moment, but not just this moment, this journey to sort of knowing that I was back in control of my body, that I can tell my body that I'm going to eat this and have this protein at this particular point or you know, do this number of, of sets of exercise and that my body would respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did. And so that was really powerful for me to be able to get back in, in sync.
0: Were you exercising before your cancer diagnosis? Was exercise a part of your I life? was.
1: Yeah, I actually, um, before the psychology gig, I really thought about um, being a dancer. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, exercise has always been something that I've loved, but I was never as into it as you know as I became. I mean, I, I can definitely tell you that in my 20s, if I ran, I was like, please, how much longer? You know, <laughs> it was never like, you know, and I was also a candy addict, um, a sugar addict. I would inject Laffy Taffy like heroin. I mean- <laughs> Seriously, serious sugar addict. And yeah, so what's so interesting to me is that I've had such a dramatic change in, you know, in the way that I take care of myself. You know, food is really um, a healing. And as we spoke about earlier, meditative practice. Mm. When I when I eat food, I'm always thinking about what I'm putting in my body and how it's taking care of me. So I never just eat You know, I'm never just shoving, you know, a hamburger in my face. I'm when I'm eating like I'm eating broccoli and I'm thinking about I'm literally thinking that this broccoli is an anti-inflammatory food and it has fiber in it. And studies show that it can reduce cancer. Like I'm literally thinking that. And every time I eat broccoli, I think that I'm doing something positive for my body. And there's so many studies that talk about cognitions or the way that we think, and how that impacts our behavior, right? And even in exercise, there are so many studies that talk about the mind-muscle connection, that if we think about the muscle that's being worked, the muscle actually will develop stronger, right? If you're just doing reps of of bicep Mm -hmm. curls without thinking about it versus really thinking about, you know, the contraction or, you know, when you're you're lifting the weight, studies show that the muscle actually grows stronger when you're really connected to it. So, when I'm really connected to my food, I know that I'm, you know, seeing myself as healthier and I actually am becoming healthier.
0: I love your attitude. I just love it. Yeah, I baby. Mean, I love it. I just, I have literally never heard anybody talk about a push up in a philosophical way. I mean,
1: well, but it, is, it if you think about it, incredible. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in exercise. I, I, one of the things that I did is I opened up this center. It's called the Metamorphosis Center for Psychological and Physical Change, and my center is half gym and half stodgy psychotherapy office. And what I do is I integrate psychotherapy and exercise, and I literally can work with uh, a, an adolescent boy who's being bullied. And part of our session will be talking about social issues and self-esteem. And the other part of our session will be him closing his eyes and doing bicep curls and literally visualizing himself becoming stronger and more in control of his body. It's a very powerful therapy, you know, and I totally believe in it, 100%. I'm
0: I'm believing in it. (laughs) I'm into it right now. I mean, I I believe I've always been... A big believer in the mind-body connection. Um, you know, my academic training is based off of that. So you're telling me things. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm I'm all about it. But I think a lot of people will benefit from hearing about your story and how relevant. Like you take that push-up. Who talks about a push-up like that? Only somebody who has had a push-up taken away from them in their life.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, I, yes. right. Yeah.
0: Who thinks about taking, like, yeah. you're like, oh, people go, oh, I don't want to do that. Uh, this and that. For you, it was a gift. It was, I but get I to do that, something. Yeah,
1: and I think, that, absolutely. But I think that that trauma in general shapes the way that we all think about things and, and it shouldn't take a trauma for people to um, be, what you and I speak about, more meditative in their life, right? Like, we should be more grateful. We should take time as we're eating to just think about The human chain and the fact that there was a farmer who planted this seed or that there was, you know, somebody who pulled the grapes from the vine and how, you know, there's this whole chain to get, you know, for the, for us to get the food that we have. Like we take a lot for granted, you know, so even the practice when you're about to eat of thinking about it with gratitude is, is really important. You know,
0: I think you're totally right. My wife would be all over this. She embodies your You guys have a very similar spirit, especially about food and the chain of things. And she has helped me have that mentality, whereas like I was in um, Disney World last week or the week before, something like that. It was an animal kingdom. And it was like one of the first times I was like, listen, we're here. I want to be real careful about what I put into my body inside this park. I want to find a place. I want to have a lot of vegetables, want some rice, you know, I want to be flavorful. And I was thinking, like, we never used to act like this when we would go on vacation. We would just eat whatever was available. It's like a trough, you know. And in my 40s now, I'm much more diligent about how this affects me. Or, like, I'm working out tonight. I always work out, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, uh, Saturdays. And I'm always very careful of, like, what am I putting into my body that will maximize my workout later on? that's very absolutely. different than 25 year old darian.
1: <laughs> absolutely. But it's also like, you know, food in general really, you know, can make a huge difference in in somebody's mental health. You know, if you're yeah. if you're eating carbohydrates all day, your your blood glucose is just taking a dip, you know, and we have to maintain our blood glucose. And so for people who have any kind of underlying anxiety or depression, the worst thing that they could be doing is, you know, just eating a bunch of carbs because They're only exacerbating, you know, anxiety or depression. So it's so important to be mindful of what you're eating, when you're eating it, you know, even be aware of like how it, how it impacts your mood, you know?
0: Yeah. So how does uh, your book, when you were in the process of writing it, what was, what was the feeling like as you're writing this book and what were your hopes for it when you were writing it?
1: So I started writing this book in 2007 when I was first oh, diagnosed a while ago.
0: Yeah.
1: and yeah yeah just a, just a bit ago um <laughs> and um I you know it was very raw and very vulnerable and psychologically I was in a very different place I was you know, fairly quiet about my breast cancer diagnosis. I really hadn't told many people. I wasn't comfortable with seeing myself in such a vulnerable way. And so I started writing lots of vulnerable stuff, but I wasn't remotely in a place to put it out in the world. And I was young mother raising two kids and I was the Brownie troop leader and PTA, like life was busy. So I kind of would table it and shelf it and I would come back to it from time to time. And I would say that the book was maybe, maybe halfway done in 2014. And I said, you know what? Psychologically, I'm ready to finish this. I can, I'm psychologically much more in touch with being vulnerable. I'm much more okay with it. I'm much more open. And, uh, literally I started taking the book out and I had a recurrence. Um, so it was just very bizarre timing and, Mm. um, Unfortunately, it gave me a lot more to write about. Um, But I I would say that writing the book was a really cathartic experience, and it was also important for me to journal um, some experiences that I was having that felt really painful, particularly with uh, uh, mental—not mental—particularly with health health professionals who I felt, you know, disappointed me, Mm. Um, or just you know, personal things that were going. All of it, the whole journey, felt important to journal.
0: Wow. And so as you as where it stands now, how do you feel that it's um, been received or how do you feel like it's helping other people?
1: I've gotten some really beautiful um, commentary. Uh, for me, it's been extremely meaningful because I've heard from people who have had absolutely no disease, no cancer in their life and not touched by cancer at all, how much it's taught them and impacted them. Um, And I've heard from people who have had cancer, how they've learned from from my book. So some things that people have said who have had cancer is that they resonate with certain things, but they also see that uh, that cancer is different for all people. Not everybody experiences cancer the same way and not everybody is going to be traumatized by the same things. Right. Like somebody who has tattoos, you know, wants tattoos, uh, for me, when I was getting radiation, um, I had to have these tiny, when I tell you like the tip of a pen, a dot, a speck, they have to tattoo you to, to mark where the radiation is going to, the field of radiation is going to hit your body. Okay. Um, and so something about being permanently marked um, for me was extremely traumatizing. I had already gone through many life-altering things with with breast cancer, but something about being tattooed felt like I was irre- irrevocably marked. That like I that I was always going to be sort of marked. Um, I think it also has to do with my history. I'm I'm Jewish. Uh, I have mm-hmm. um, relatives who have been you know who were in the Holocaust. Um, in the Jewish religion, you're, yeah. you know you're not supposed to have tattoos, whole bunch of things with the tattoos. So for me, that experience was was much more emotionally challenging. Whereas for somebody else, that wouldn't have been it. There might have been something else that that impacted them. But something like that is what I was trying to express. That, you know, people experience things very, very differently. There's no one size fits all. I also had many people say to me, oh, you know, you only went through this. Um, I have a friend who had, you know, X, Y and Z. They had radiation and chemo. Right. And so like this sense that cancers could be compared or that, you know, you didn't really have cancer if you didn't go through chemo or if you did go through chemo, you really had it like a a way to qualify, you know, like, you know, how much cancer was relevant. So things like that I I really um, wanted to write about.
0: Wow, that you're throwing some stuff on me here today. I'd say, I'm like, it's almost competitive cancer comparison. Like, that seems
1: weird to well, me. Well, that's kind of, but that's, but that, that's. I literally would have people say to me, "Oh, my friend, my friend, you had it much easier. My friend went through this," and I, I would be like, "Wow, like you have no idea, right?" Um, because you know you can't qualify the diagnosis of cancer. You, you can't. It's you know you and yeah. It's
0: not like there's un- this universal experience completely for everyone that
1: Definitely it's not. just different
0: for different people and you have to accept that with others, you know. Right.
1: It, it, it's not that different than like loss and bereavement, you know, many people will assume that if somebody has a parent die that that is probably the most tragic death in their life, but there not are true. some people <laughs> yeah. who Exactly. There are some people who don't speak to their parents. There are some people who were raised by a grandparent, you know, and they don't, you know, they might not even speak to their parent, right? And so we can't assume a relationship to something just based on role or based on what we've always thought it to be. You know, it's a very personal experience for each individual person.
0: That's a great analogy. So true. I think we have these preconceived notions of like, well, you're related to this person or this person's X, Y, Z in your life. So you should feel a certain way about their passing because of that. But everybody's Mm -hmm. experience with whoever their, whatever loved one passed or whoever is very different. And you can't say you should feel this way or you should feel that way. It's just be comforting. And, that's right. You know, be comforting, right. you know. How do how do you that's know? Right. Just be comforting. Don't don't make it weird because it doesn't fit your box or your experience of how you that's think right. it should be.
1: That's right. And I think that that's sort of one of the things that I'm, you know, echoing in my experience with cancer because there was a lot of that. And I don't think that it comes from malintent. I think it's just, you know, a lack of awareness.
0: Yeah you've just, uh, you provided some amazing, amazing stuff today, Renee. I mean, I'm really blessed. I'm thankful that I got a chance to speak with you. I am.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That's so nice.
0: Well, you know, I have this hair, I have this hair here, so, you know, I gotta be. I, I,
1: I deeply appreciate the, um, the opportunity to spend time talking to you.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it too. Thanks for your time. I know you're busy and, uh, We will be in touch. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Have a great workout. It's Thursday. Have a great workout. Thursday is
0: workout time.
1: Go kick butt. butt. All right. Thank you.
0: Take care, Renee. All right. You're finally at that hot new spot. The one your friends keep raving about sitting across from your date. It's going another round really well. And that dish you've been dying to try, oh, it's headed your way. You can smell it, hear it sizzling fresh off that skillet as it comes closer, closer, and served. Go ahead, enjoy. After your phone sneaks a bite first, when you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express, don't live life without it.
1: From earaches to strep tests, visit MinuteClinic at CVS. See a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials. Or see us online with telehealth options. That's how healthier happens together. Services vary by location. Prescriptions can be obtained at pharmacy of choice. Visit MinuteClinic.com for details.